0: In this podcast, I caught up with Dr. Neil MacArthur, Professor of Philosophy at Manitoba University and asked him about the term digisexual. Digisexuality is a term first introduced by Dr. Neil MacArthur and Marky Twist's 2017 Journal of Sexual and Relationship Therapy paper, The Rise of Digisexuality, Therapeutic Challenges and Possibilities. A digisexual is someone whose primary sexual identity comes through the use of technology. So if a big part of your sexual experiences and connections with another person have things such as sexing or Skype, you're probably also a digisexual. Neil MacArthur. I am
1: the director of the Center for Professional Applied Ethics and a professor of philosophy at the University of
0: Manitoba. This term, digisexuality, Neil, can you explain it?
1: Of course, yes. So, I'll just say that in general, I'm, a, I'm an ethicist and I'm, I'm interested, I'm not a technologist by any means, so I'm interested in the ethical and social implications of technology. The term digisexuality was a term that Marky e. Twist and I, I've developed emerging from research on the impact of technology on people's relationships, and specifically on people's identities. And we were noticing that, first of all, people forming very close attachments to their technology. And secondly, we were also aware that there is a whole new generation of technology emerging, particularly immersive and intense in the experience it offers. And our view is that there will be people who will start to derive their primary sexual identity from their use of technology and use of sexual technology. So digisexuals are people who see technology as essential to
0: their sexual experience and who don't see humans as essential to their sexual experience. It's not even necessarily a blended experience. It can be a completely digital one.
1: That's right. It certainly can be. And I think we anticipate that the majority of people will integrate technology into human relationships, but we think there will be a small number of people Uh, for whom the technology is itself a number but my suspicion is it will be a small number but nevertheless a significant number so i I think that when you look at other forms of alternative sexualities whether it's kink or whatever i mean I, i i often use the analogy of kink where you know lots of people are interested in it lots of people dabble in it i guess you'd say but then there's a core group of people of course of the population who see it as their primary sexual experience and our speculation is pretty ungrounded but i sort of anticipating maybe you will see two or three percent of the population who identify as digisexuals
0: so the percentage is just like in well we have all these subcultures also without digitization
1: exactly and so when you look at how these identities emerge and how they spread and what their rough prevalence is i think you can and, and when you look at just how widespread the use of technology is i think you can probably you guess that it would come in around there.
0: Why is there a moral panic over this, Neil, in your opinion? I think moral panic is a good term for it. I mean, people have anxieties around
1: technology and new technologies, and then people have anxieties around sex. And so when you put those two together, they end up being in a pretty, potent combination, right guess. I'm still trying to decipher why people have such strong reactions uh, to this technology. I think that... It's one thing that concerns. I think there's lots of real concerns people have, and I'm very sympathetic to a lot of those concerns. But you're right; the reaction tends to uh, tends to spill over into something much more disproportionate.
0: Maybe the reaction is greater than the actual reality.
1: That's right. And I think these. I mean, first of all, these technologies are coming quite slowly. Uh, you know, technology always moves fast, but it's not like tomorrow everybody's going to abandon human relationships and just marry robots. I think we're a ways away. I think that the virtual reality technology is moving more quickly than
0: say robot technology. You know, although even the VR technology is, is, I mean you would maybe know this better than I do, but it's, it's, it's some hiccups. What was very interesting with the conversation I had with Matt was that these dolls, even though there's a demand for them and what he's doing, putting AI into them, he said they will never replace real women. It depends on what your needs are and your requirements are. But let's kind of bring it back to, you know, what you were saying there about, you know, people marrying robots. What's the situation? I read there recently about some Japanese man had married actually a virtual character, virtu- a virtual reality character. But we're, we're hearing stories coming out of Japan, mostly parts of Asia, maybe possibly even so, but it seems more so in Japan. But they're marrying robots and they're... From the stuff
1: I've read, I think you can link it to some issues around, honestly, just the fact that you know, when women enter into relationships, they're expected to have kids and drop out of the workforce. So a lot of women don't end up entering into relationships because they want careers or they delay being in relationships. And that leaves a lot of young men pretty lonely. So uh, I, I think that's, you know, definitely part of the dynamic there. Right? You know, obviously Asia and Japan and in particular and Korea, as you say, are, have always been on the cutting edge of technology. And they have fewer, maybe, uh, hangups about uh, new technologies than we do. And so it maybe makes sense they're also uh, more, more willing to experiment.
0: But things are changing. We're, we're entering into this time, as you said, where women are choosing career over family. This is the age we've kind of gone into. There's more women, let's say, in the workplace and more of them are choosing financial independence over marriage and, and, and children. Yeah, yeah,
1: that's right. And so I think, you know, obviously we should we should see that as a positive thing. And I think that, you know, that, yeah, as you say, that's happening in our, in our society as well. And I think that, in general, as young people find their careers, whether they men or women, more demanding and just find that relationships are, can be their priority, I do think that is partly what's driving uh, these, these technologies for sure.
0: But also, yeah. I think the technological adoption means, there, we were talking about it this morning, the social media addiction, it means people don't really have, have a lot of time for other stuff that they, they used to have for whatever that other stuff used to be, you know, sort of fit whatever you want in there.
1: Yeah, no, that's right. And I, I certainly am very sympathetic to people who who worry about the impact of technology. Um, sort of hauling out our social spaces. I think that's that's a real problem, and I wouldn't want to. Uh, you know, I have, so my, my general view about digisexual technology is that it's it's good, and I'm very positive on it. But I think that there are various kinds of uh, negative effects that it can have, and certainly one of them is the potential to continue what's already happening, which is that. That, yeah, people are connecting less in real life, and we're seeing fewer social spaces and fewer connections.
0: What are the more emerging trends we're most likely to see, Neil, in, say, in the next five years? Uh,
1: I think that, so I'll say, first of all, I think that people, when they think of this sort of technology, they really focus on robots. And I think the robots are I think it's going to be, and, you know, the movies are always about robots. And the TV shows are always about robots. I don't think the robots are coming anytime soon. I think there's just too many hurdles around designing robots. I do think that the virtual reality technology is the stuff that we should keep an eye on. And the one—the one, the part of it that interests me, I mean, there's virtual reality porn, and it's honestly not very interesting. The virtual reality that interests me is these uh, sort of group spaces, I guess you'd say, various kinds of multi-user environments where people can interact and can now interact sexually. I think that I think that that's probably gonna be a, something that will happen fairly quickly and develop fairly quickly. And whether and it will probably happen in conjunction with, you may know the term Teledildonics, these sort of haptic feedback devices that you can buy that you can link to your virtual reality. And, uh, and experience physical sensations when you're in virtual reality. So I think that I think
0: that's the trend to keep- with virtual reality. You're completely Im- immersed in the world. You're not sharing your 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 body or your hormones with someone else. So is this a biological thing that's kind of going to be replaced? You know, is it going to replace the biology? I don't think it will replace biology, I think it's going to supplement it. I think that it will provide a lot
1: of people with outlets that they they can't achieve in real life. I think that, you know, some people I think through virtual reality can connect with each other. I think that these sort of teledonic technologies are tremendously useful in long distance relationships. Uh, You know, I always think of this as being something that will probably supplement real connection. Although, again, there are people who will prefer it and who may forego that real sort of biological connection. But I don't think that's the end of the world, because we already, there's already lots of people who just choose to remain single. And, you know, we don't really panic about that. There's a huge percentage of people who just don't seem to need that biological connection with anyone. Just They're just on their own. So the fact that some of them are using technology, I don't think is a big deal. What happens is you buy a sex toy that is like, you know, the sex toys that you would be familiar with, and then, but they, they're networked and you can hook them up to your virtual reality set and then just coordinate the feedback. It gives you feedback based on what's happening in virtual reality. Minimize the fact that there are concerns, but I think that when you talk about the ethics of it, you need to talk about, yeah, costs and benefits. I see a lot of benefits. I see a lot of benefits people who are isolated. I see a lot of benefits for people who have had sexual trauma or who have trouble forming human relationships for any number of reasons. Maybe they're just shy. Maybe they're not conventionally attractive. I think that, to put it very simply, I think these technologies are actually kind of going to be a lot of fun and people are going to enjoy experimenting with them it's just going to be, it's going to be something that people can, you know, find a lot of pleasure from and hopefully too, this will continue to break down some of the hangups we have. I mean, it won't if people continue to panic about it, but if people start to accept these kinds of technology, it'll start breaking down some of that hangups we have still about sex. Negatively, though, I do think that, um, you know, already pornography portrays women in a certain way, very stereotypical in terms of their personalities, in terms of their body types, and all that. And I think that at least initially, this technology is going to, you know, continue with that sort of pornification of, you know, how we view women. And I don't think that's a good thing at all. But I, I, I'm sort of optimistic that that will sort of fall to the wayside as people develop more interesting technologies. That there's already. Lots of people who are trying to develop sexual technologies that don't just look like
0: female porn bars. It's very interesting what, what you're saying, what you made about the pornification of women in particular, which isn't healthy. We're seeing a huge impact on social media, on mental health, and especially on young girls. So I think it's I think it's very difficult when you're faced into the sort of unrealistic expectation from both young you know, teenagers, both, both guys and girls. This, in a way, what they're seeing online is making them sick, isn't it?
1: it is absolutely and you know i mean as i say i think that you know i don't think the newer technologies that i'm talking about are going to create that problem i do think they could exacerbate it okay um but i guess if you want to look at maybe a positive flip side maybe this will finally be a wake-up call that makes us really address some of these deeper issues around you know the expectations we have of women and what they should look like and how they should behave
0: can i ask a question i mean obviously the companies spend bazillions on the porn companies on research and tracking data, you know, and how long, you know, the the data analytics, I mean, Pornhub in particular. If these companies also, they also, they know exactly what they're doing and they also know It makes women ill. So, where are the ethics with these companies and who controls that? Because the genie, it's like Pandora's box. Now, anything goes with pornography. Who calls the shots with these people? Who wraps these people on the knuckles? Are we just, we are just all victims to it and that's just it. We have to comply with our tech overlords who decide who are mostly coded and most of the stuff is done in Miami now. It's done by men for men. So, why is it all? There's a massive imbalance. How can we? how can we rectify this is it going to be possible that's my question
1: I, think, I don't think it's going to be easy for sure I, I think that the response is always going to have to be to just develop better products think that- the companies that exist now have their business model and their culture, and I don't think they're probably going to change until society forces them to, just by changes in preferences. But I do think, I mean, here's one thing I will say about sex tech: it isn't dominated by any of the big companies that dominate other forms of technology because they're just afraid to enter this space. And so, right now, in actually, although there are certainly a few big players, relatively speaking. There isn't the same kind of oligo-oligopoly, whatever you'd say, you know, controlled by a small number of companies. There's a lot of room for innovation and a lot of room for new players to enter the market. I mean, one of the challenges is that they, these companies have is it is just very, very hard to raise money. That they the venture capitalists won't touch anything that's related to uh, sex tech, and you know the, the, uh, the big big trade shows are, are you see very. Capricious about who they allow to display, and so there isn't a support network for smaller, more innovative companies who are developing more interesting products. And so I think that if we could develop that kind of that kind of financial promotional infrastructure for some of these younger, more dynamic companies, then you would see more interesting technologies. You would you wouldn't just see what the what the big pornography companies are doing.
0: But isn't that a massive opportunity? It should be. A massive opportunity. Yeah, I think I think somebody,
1: if somebody can figure it out, I think somebody's gonna get wealthy. Hopefully that hopefully we won't just create a bunch of new monopolies. But what I would love to see is a dynamic industry. I think it's very possible a dynamic industry with lots of small players and you know lots of alternative you know lots of alternative designers and there's room for all sorts of interesting things. We can just figure out how to get the money into the industry. And I, I know that one of the one of the issues is that the pension firms and particularly I think the California Teachers Pension uh, requires that anywhere inputs its money uh, not be anything to do with
0: sex, basically. And so so none of these big venture capital firms that have backing from these pension companies can put any money into these companies. And of course, they all have pensions. <laughs> they all have pension companies. Yeah, but still, there's there, there's a lot of room, for, as you said, for innovation and for women-driven companies and for a lot of new players to emerge in the space. You just need the right, the right type of investors. I'm sure they're out there. They just need to group together.
1: I think that's right. I think that's right. I think it just takes some some people to sort of make it happen within the industry. I, I don't understand, but I would love to see it happen. Because as you say, I think there's like, I mean, look, here's one thing I will say already. Uh, if you look at who uses sexual technology, that is to say who uses sex toys, it's overwhelmingly women. And you know, they're the market for sex toys. So all we need to do is
0: get people to see that they are also potentially a huge, huge, huge part of the market for new sexual technology. And you will see companies that are led by women, that are designed by women, that are targeted. There you go now, listeners. This is a, there's a huge opportunity there. It's a massive area. The growing, I think the demographic group that's growing with the use of pornography also is women.
1: Yeah, that's right. And, and I think that's that's because there's finally starting to be, you know, products that respond to their needs. And, and finally, it's sort of, like, I think, a virtuous circle is that finally some companies or some pornography
0: producers are figuring out there's a market for something more than the crab, policy that they've been producing correctly. Yeah, it's, it's, I suppose it's, it's, it, things take time to mature and also people's sophisticated tastes also need to, to develop and emerge, don't they? That's true and but I also think the other big thing is one thing that affects women in particular is just stigma around some of this technology and you know, around watching pornography and so on. And so I think, you know, one of the things I'm very interested in is how do we break down stigmas around sexual technology so that so that people and in particular women do feel comfortable Using it? Do we start in school, Neil, or wh- where does it begin?
1: It's a good question. I think probably there is a role. I, I think that one way or another, here's what I will say one way or another, sexual education in school is going to have to start really grappling with technology. And so, given that they're going to have to do that anyway, hopefully, yes. Hopefully, they can develop a, a sense that technology can be positive and, and you know, promote some understanding around what counts as positive technologies and positive use of technologies. I think the broader Culture, it can play a huge role too. I mean, I, I really—it's amazing to me how much television and uh, movies and so on that have been—and now you know Ian McEwan has a new novel. It's not as into literature. Um, how many people are writing about sex and technology, and yet it is still kind of still locked into some of this very conventional moral panic kind of stuff. And it would be nice if. We can normalize it a bit in the media as well.
0: Why did this stigma around women happen? Is it because of patriarchy or was it the religious organizations?
1: Yeah, that's that's a a good question. I think that, you know, we've had, it's funny, when you look at how women have been portrayed in society, it changes. There's always patriarchy, but once upon a time in the 18th century, women were seen as sexual initiators and people with huge sexual appetites. And that was the concern. The concern was that there were. Women out there just wanting to seduce men left and right, and then in the nineteenth century suddenly you shift to the more Victorian uh, view of women as totally desexualized, and and now I think we've ended up kind of kind of muddled about it at all. Certainly no, you know, we certainly don't have a perfect under, you know understanding of how to promote women's positive women's sexuality, but but we're kind of neither here nor there. We've got different paradigms, and I do think that as women have become more assertive in the workplace and in education and so on it's, it's changed for the better that's for sure so wherever it came
0: from i do think it's breaking down but I, that doesn't mean we need to be complacent i think it still presents huge challenges and as you say i think the social media environment has really amped things up in a lot of ways so it's really it's really a case of maybe time neil
1: i, I think so although i don't think that it's going to happen accidentally. i think that we need to keep pushing for i think there's so many brave people who are out there trying to talk about sexuality, or writing books about sexuality that are positive. I think the one thing you've seen in the last decade is sexualities and sexual identities that we would have once considered very weird or alternative, starting to really emerge openly. I mean, not just gays and lesbians, but non-monogamous people and kinky people are all sort of coming out of their own closets. And so I think
0: that the more visibility we have around different kinds of alternative sexualities, the more we start to say, oh, I see, just because they're different doesn't mean there's anything wrong with them. Yeah, I think that that's going you know, to promote
1: understanding of the technology and that so sexual identity as well.
0: We also have more terms now.
1: We do. We do. We, have, uh, <laughs> we definitely have a proliferation of, of terms. I mean, it can be a little, can be a little uh,
0: hard to keep track. <laughs> that's for sure. <laughs> Including sexuality. Thanks for listening and checking out my podcast. You can head over to Spotify and find my podcast there or on Apple iTunes. Subscribe to my podcast on my website. You can head over to www.inaom.io for further details.